of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Through the grace of God, we will study tonight Psalm 32 from the book of Psalms. The, each psalm has a title. The title of this psalm, a psalm of David, a contemplation. And according to the Hebrew origin, the title is Mashkil, a psalm of David. The word Mashkil means in Hebrew giving instruction. So we can say this psalm is an instructive psalm because this psalm gives great instruction about the feeling of the guilt of sin and the great blessing of forgiveness. Also, other scholars said the word mashkil means the melody used in singing this psalm. Others said it points to the musical instrument used together with this psalm. But this psalm is full of instruction and contemplation, and it is worthy of meditation. That's why the word sila, which is pause for people to reflect and meditate, is repeated three times, although this psalm is only 11 verse. This psalm is one of the seven repentant psalms. What are the seven repentant psalms? Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. So this psalm is one of the seven repentant psalms. It has been composed by David after his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Psalm 51, which is known for Psalm 50 according to the Septuagint numbering, actually is the first prayer for forgiveness, first heartfelt prayer for forgiveness. While this psalm, which was written after that, records the experience of David uh, after actually he enjoyed the blessing of forgiveness. And he recorded his experience to warn us and to instruct us. In Psalm 51, he said, I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners shall be converted to you. So he fulfilled this promise that he said in Psalm 50, I shall teach the transgressory way in Psalm 32. Because this is an instructive psalm. And in this psalm, there is warning to all of us about the importance of repenting and confessing our sins. St. Augustine used to read this psalm with weeping hearts and heart and eyes. And he had it before his death written on the wall over his sick bed. 
that he might exercise himself and find comfort in his sickness while he is praying this psalm. This psalm describes the blessedness of forgiveness and teaches that repentance is an essential condition in order to receive forgiveness. And David shares with us his experience that after he had sinned grievously, he refused to acknowledge his sin. So he suffered inward torture. But when he confessed his sin, when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, this brought to him instant forgiveness. And reflecting from his own experience, he exhorts us and urges us to pray and to confess our sins and to repent. And because David in this psalm professed his trust and confidence in the Lord, that's why he received from God a promise of guidance and instruction. Then he addressed men in general and warned all of us against the foolishness of resisting the will of God. And he contrasts the share of the godly people with the share of the wicked people. This psalm is concluded with exhortation to the righteous to rejoice always. The outline of the psalm, verse 1 and 2, divine forgiveness, 3 and 4, the agony of unconfessed and hidden sin, verse 5, goodness of confession and forgiveness, verse 6 and 7, divine protection, 8 and 9, divine guidance, 10 and 11, blessing of mercy and joy. So let's start from verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you remember Psalm 1 tells us the way to be blessed. When we said blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinner, nor sits in the seat of scornful, but his delight in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates, meditates day and night. But if one has failed to do this, to do Psalm 1, and had fallen into sin, then Psalm 32 shows another way to be blessed, which is to make full confession and repentance of sin. Then you will be blessed. That's why David in the psalm spoke of the great blessing that the person will receive when he admit his sin, confess his sin and repent he will receive the blessing of forgiveness. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Whose sin is covered means the sin is no longer exposed. God covers his sin 
as we say in Thanksgiving prayer, for you have covered us. And David had great opportunity to know and to experience this blessedness in his own life. No one can fairly appreciate the value of health until he had to mourn the loss of it. That's why David, when he tasted the bitterness of sin, then he was able to taste the sweetness of purity and forgiveness. David experienced what it was like to be a guilty sinner. But also David experienced how good it is to be truly forgiven by God after he realized the seriousness of his sin. When David said whose sin is covered, literally means taken away. Taken away. Covered, taken away. So, did not exist. And it is in opposition to the will retained. You know, the Lord said to the disciple, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And if you forgive sins of any, they are forgiven. Forgiven or covered means taken away completely. God no longer regards the sin. Then in verse 2 he said, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Mean whom God does not charge him with the guilt of his sins, as he just justly might, because this person is guilty of his sin. But since he repent, God will absolve him completely, and he will accept him in his son Jesus Christ. But this repentance should be sincere. That's why he said, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Means he freely confesses all his sins. Truly he is sorrow for his sins. Genuinely he hates the sins and turns from sin to God with all his heart. In these two verses, David used three words to describe sin. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. What are the differences between these three words? Transgression means passing over a boundary. Meaning, in other words, doing what is prohibited. So when God says to me, don't do this, thou shalt not murder. If I kill, it is a transgression. Because I did something that's prohibited. And transgression needs forgiveness. Forgiveness means to throw out the debt or the burden of the sin. The second term, sin. And sin means missing a mark or not doing what's commanded. Transgression is doing what is prohibited. You shall not do this, but I do it. Sin means I will not do what's commanded, like honor your father and mother. That's a commandment. But if I don't do it, 
it is sin. And it actually express sinfulness. Transgression should be forgiven, sin should be covered. Covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the sacrificial blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus purify us from all sins. The third term, iniquity. Iniquity means morally distorted. Something illegal, something contrary to the values and to the morals, to the justice and equity. And iniquity must be imputed, needs to be imputed, means will not be counted account against a person. So transgression to do something that's prohibited. Sin not to do something that is commanded, commanded. And iniquity means to do something immoral. That's iniquity. Uh, transgression should be forgiven, sin should be covered, iniquity should be uh, not be imputed. So the sinner who enjoys the forgiveness of his sins and covering them by blood of Jesus will be counted as innocent before God. But in order to reach this forgiveness, he should bear no deceit in his heart, nor in his mind, nor his mouth. So when he confesses his sin and repent, he is not just doing something to meet some requirements. No, genuinely he is repenting and developing godly sorrow. Saint Justin, Justin the Martyr says, God did not say, blessed is he who commits no transgression, because no one commits no transgression. But God said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. For if you search for someone who commits no transgression, you will find the none. How then could this person be blessed? No one. But he is blessed if his transgressions are forgiven and what he has committed are covered. This is why the sacrament of confession and repentance is so important because it gives us an opportunity to get our soul back to the place it was at baptism, to be forgiven, and we go back to the status of baptism. Uh, in, In confession, the old man dies and the new person arises. That's why we receive Holy Communion weekly and pray daily as a way for our sins to be covered with the blood of Jesus and the grace of God. St. Jerome says, If the serpent, the devil, bites someone secretly, he infects that person with the venom of sin. And if the one who has been bitten 
keeps in silence and does not do penance and does not want to confess his wound, then his brother, the clergyman, the priest, and his master, the Lord, who have the word of absolution that will cure him, cannot very well assist him. So he's saying if somebody actually is bitten with the serpent, the devil, but he did not repent and did not confess his sin, neither Abuna nor the Lord can do anything to cure him or to assist him. Verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, here David is sharing experience. After he committed adultery and killed Uriah, he decided to be silent. When I kept silent, what happened to him? My bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. Not only that. For day and night, your hand, the hand of God, was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. So, David remembered his spiritual and mental state when he kept his sin hidden and was silent instead of confessing his sins and repenting. The stress of dual life or double life and the unconfessed sin made him feel oppressed and dry. He says, I kept silence. Not merely I was silent, but kept silence. Did not confess his sin at once. Sought to hide it and to conceal it. He did not only admit his crime of adultery, but he sought by all means to refuse to acknowledge it. That's why he killed Uriah in order to cover the sin of adultery. David at this moment, or at this time, had no fellowship with God as long as he was silent about his sin and he did not repent and he did not confess it. That's why his joy in life was gone and was replaced by bitterness and anguish. David, like any non-repentant sinner, was miserable until he confessed his sins then he was forgiven and the joy was restored to him. When the heart is full of guilt, the body feels bad too. Sinful living brings only sorrow and pain. Even God, his hand was heavy upon David, meaning the afflicting hand of God which is severe, grave, and heavy to be borne. Why? Because God want David to repent. So he let him go through many hardships and trials. St. Augustine says, I was made miserable by knowing my misery being bricked with an evil conscience. David actually suffered many hardships in punishment of his sins. In order, God did all of this to lead him to repentance. The child born in adultery died as an infant. His daughter, Samar, 
was assaulted by her own brother Amun. And the same Amun was slain by his brother Absalom. Absalom in rebellion against his father David was slain. So all these things were matters of deep sorrow and grief to David. St. John Chrysostom says, God opens before us many ways to wipe out our iniquities. One of these ways to wipe out our iniquities is to confess our sins and to always remember them. If we remember our sins, God will forgive, forget them. David said, my vitality was turned into the trout of summer. David's dryness and misery was actually a good thing because it led him to repentance. Also, his pain and sorrow demonstrated that he was a son of God. Because God would not allow him to remain comfortable in unconfessed sin. As St. Paul in Hebrews said, if you are the children of God, God will discipline you. So, the, the fact that God disciplined David and David felt the sorrow and pain, this a demonstration that David is the son of God and God actually disciplined David as a son. But the person who feels no misery or dryness when he is in a sinful state actually should have great concern about his salvation and his eternity. Because this means the Holy Spirit was quenched in him. That's why, as the Bible says, they drink iniquity like water. The work of the Holy Spirit who convict us of our sins and pierce the hardness of heart is an essential mark to actually demonstrate that we truly belong to God. These four verses ended with Silah. Silah, something, it is a musical note or a change of the note or the tune of the song. But others said it is a pause, full stop for a while and a note for attention and reflection and contemplation. Others said it is an affirmation of the truth or of anything, as if we say verily or truly or amen or so be it or so it is or so it shall be. It is the truth of thing. And Ibn Azra agrees on this sense. Salah also can be opposed to reflect on the meaning of verses before continuing to read the rest of the psalm. Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin. After this difficult time, he decided, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, 
and you forgive the iniquity of my sin. So David confessed his sin fully and freely, confessed it as a sin, as iniquity, and as a transgression. And forgiveness was ready and waiting for David immediately when he confessed his sin and acknowledged the nature and guilt of his sin. Nathan the prophet told him, and the Lord removed your sin. Restoration was ready, but the confession of sin is the path to it. And the church practiced confession in the time of the apostles. In Acts 19, verse 20, we read, many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Christians were getting right with God and confession was part of it. David in verse 5 proclaims that he has not hidden his sin anymore. For he knows that whoever hides his sin does not deceive God, but in actually he deceives himself. And David was confident in the mercies of the Lord. He confessed and experienced this forgiveness immediately. Just as the prodigal son, when he confessed his sin, he was immediately forgiven by his father. But why David was forgiven immediately? Because David offered a sincere confession by the mouth, but also he offered an inward confession in his heart, accompanied by sorrowful repentance, begging for forgiveness for sins and for the offense made to the divine majesty. And David, because he stopped covering his iniquity, then God forgave the iniquity of his sins. We should know it is useless to hide our sins, for our sins are very well known to the Lord. It is helpful to us when we own our sins and we take full sincere responsibility and we make full sincere confession. This actually, with repentance, grants us forgiveness. David said, you forgive the iniquity of my sin. So not only his sin was forgiven, but the iniquity of his sin also was forgiven. The iniquity of sin means the feeling of its guilt was put away. And this happened as soon as he acknowledged his sin. And again, after verse 5, after one verse, uh, Selah was repeated, which maybe here means Amen, or it is true. Verse 6 and 7. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. Verse 6 starts for this cause. Which cause? David meant that his experience 
in acknowledging his sin and receiving immediate and instant forgiveness would encourage others also to take a similar step and make supplication to the Lord. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Every godly person should pray to God to get the same blessing of forgiveness as David. Godly person doesn't mean sinless, but means a virtuous person who truly, truly repentant and having begun to hate sin. Forgiveness of sins is to be prayed as the Lord taught us, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. As long as we seek God, we will find him. In a time you may be found. Knowing that God is so great in forgiveness and in his mercy, God gives the godly a great reason to seek him in confidence in order to receive forgiveness. And when they seek him, God will be found. But let no one delay, for is also there is a time in which we will not find God. As we read in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 28, Then they shall call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. That's why don't postpone your repentance, because there is time will come, we cannot find God. Seek him, before the time of mercy passes away, before it is too late, and now it's time of judgment and time of condemnation. In verse 7 he said, In a flood of great waters, this flood shall not come near him. Means in time of trouble and hardship, he will not be overwhelmed, but he will be safe like one who stands on a rock out of the reach, uh, of reach of the raging flood. St. Augustine says, Nevertheless, let none think when the end has come suddenly, as in the days of Noah, that there remains a place of confession whereby he may draw near unto God. So, when the end of our life comes, and several times it comes suddenly, you will not have time to confess and repent to God. David in verse 7 glorified God because he protected him. And he said, anyone close to God, in fellowship with God, will be protected by God and under his care. And God himself not only protected him, but he became his hiding place, a secure shelter. As he said in verse 7, you are my hiding place. You are my hiding place. So God did not hide him, but he became his hiding place.
honest and full confession made David, who was in verse 4, oppressed by the hand of God, as he said in verse 4, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Now David finds shelter in God when he confessed his sins and repented. Verse 8 and 9. Verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. So here, who is speaking God? Until verse 7, David was speaking. Starting from verse 8, God is speaking. God is speaking to answer the profession of David about his confidence and trust in God. So, in verse 8, God is promising every repentant person to instruct, to teach, and to guide them. Instruct means to give us inward wisdom and good discernment to enable us to guard against the snares of the enemies. That's instruct. Teach is the outward assistance of the providence of God, without which even the wisest get into the greatest difficulties. Teach you the way in which you should go. Guide, as he said, I will guide you with my eye, means I will not take them off you, but I will steadily and constantly look upon you with an eye of benevolence and gentleness. You know, before the GPS, uh, people used to get direction and follow the direction. But if you missed exit or if you missed the traffic light, it's easy to get lost. But now with the GPS, the GPS actually as if it's eye on me. So if I miss an exit or if I miss a traffic light, the GPS will do like detour and will continue to guide me step by step until I reach my destination. So that is the meaning in verse 8. I will guide you with my eye. So I'm not going to give you a direction and tell you this is the direction to the kingdom of heaven and you are on your own. No, I am with you. I will hold your hand and walk with you step by step until you reach your destination. I will not take my eyes off you, but I will steadily and constantly look upon you with an eye of benevolence and gentleness. Definitely, this is a great blessing that comes from being forgiven and our fellowship with God is restored. So as long as the believer delivers his life to God, the Lord will guide him along his path, granting him spirit of wisdom and understanding. And as long as God, sorry, as long as we hold our eyes or fix our eyes upon the Lord, the Lord will hold his eyes upon me. Verse 9, 
God is saying, do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Meaning what? He who reject the instruction of the Lord, he who reject repentance and confession, will become like without understanding, will be counted like a horse or mule. For understanding is what distinguishes us from the irrational animals. So this warning is addressed to all who resist the will of God and neglect his instruction and neglect repentance and confession. It would be enough for a father to look at his son, for through understanding the son would hasten to correct his wrongdoing. But a shepherd who has horses and mule, the mere look of their master is not enough. But the horse or the mule need a bit or a bridle to harness and to lead them. Otherwise, they will not come near to you because they are without understanding or reason. So they must be controlled and compelled by force to learn to submit to their master's will. So if a man will not draw near to God and obey him on his own free will, he is lowering himself to the level of a horse or mule and must expect to be treated accordingly and disciplined. Why? In order to repent and return back to the sheepfold. So David understood this to describe his condition in his season of unconfessed sin. The time in which David kept silent, he was a horse like horse or mule. He was like a stubborn animal that could only be guided through pain and severity. The Savior actually looked at Peter, and this look was enough for Peter to go outside and to weep bitterly. Whereas uh, David uh, needed bridle of cruel temptation in order actually to repent and return back to God. So what are the bit and brittle that God will use with us? The answer is in verse 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. So God will let the wicked to go through many sorrows. And if they repent, then mercy will surround them. So the unrepentant sinner is still attached to his sin, will be afflicted with many suffering and difficulties, both in this world and if he continue to not to repent until he dies, this sorrow will be in the life after. Sometimes sinners may prosper here, but their sinful state 
is the most grievous punishment because it brings with it countless punishment and anxieties, fears, dangers, etc. God is a just judge. He adds many other affliction to lead the sinner to repent. And once the sinner repents and pray to God in a fitting season, he actually will be forgiven and will not come into everlasting condemnation. That's why he said, but he who trusts in the Lord, not in human vanity, he will be surrounded by divine mercy that affliction cannot touch him. The divine mercy is the fountain of all good. That's why he said, mercy shall surround him in verse 10. And he wants to give us an idea about the immense amount of blessing that those who attach themselves to God in repentance and confession, they will enjoy this mercy abundantly. David understood what it was to live as the wicked when he kept silent. And that's why sorrows came to him. But the repentant David, he experienced the mercies of God surrounding him. And he enjoyed the mercies of God. Verse 11, which is the last verse. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So, David end this psalm with a note of joy. And he repeated the word joy in three different ways. Be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. What are the reasons for this joy? Because all the blessings that he receives after he confessed his sin and repented. So this psalm appropriately ends with a call to all God's people to remember and to respond to this blessing with shout for joy. They rejoice in the Lord because God forgives our sins, because God is our refuge, because he will guide me in my life. He is also the source of my glory. Our joy in the Lord is not temporal, but eternal. Our joy should not be over temporal riches or over earthly things, but over the forgiving Lord. This psalm started in verse 1 by giving blessing to those whose sins are forgiven and ended in verse 11 by rejoicing in the Lord. This concludes Psalm 20, uh, sorry, 32. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.